and welcome to the uh, Regina Reads podcast. I will be reading today Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, an absolute classic. Uh, I hope you enjoy. So the, we start with a word from the author. In every chapter of this book, mention has been made of the money-making secret which has made fortunes for hundreds of exceedingly wealthy men who I have carefully analysed over a long period of years. The secret was brought to my attention by Andrew Carnegie more than half a century ago. The canny, lovable old Scotsman carelessly tossed it into my mind when I was but a boy. Then he sat back in his chair with a merry twinkle in his eye and watched carefully to see if I had brains enough to understand the full significance of what he had said to me. When he saw that I had grasped the idea, he asked if I would be willing to spend 20 years or more preparing myself to take it to the world, to men and women who, without the secret, might go through life as failures. I said I would, and with Mr Carnegie's cooperation, I kept my promise. This book contains the secret, after having been put on a practical test by thousands of people in almost every walk of life. It was Mr. Carnegie's idea that the magic formula, which gave him a stupendous fortune, ought to be placed within the reach of people who do not have the time to investigate how men make money, and it was his hope that I might test and demonstrate the soundness of the formula through the experience of men and women in every calling. He believed the formula should be taught in all public schools and colleges and expressed the opinion that if it were properly taught, it would so revolutionise the entire educational system that the time spent in school could be reduced to less than half. In the chapter on faith, you will read the astounding story of the organisation of the United States Steel Corporation as it was conceived and carried out by one of the young men through whom Mr Carnegie proved that his formula will work for all who are ready for it. This single application of the secret by Charles M. Schwab made him a huge fortune in both money and opportunity. Roughly speaking, this particular application of the formula was worth $600 million. These facts and they are facts well known to almost everyone who knew Mr Carnegie, give you a fair idea of what reading of this book may bring to you, provided you know what it is that you want. The secret was passed on to thousands of men and women who have used it for their personal benefit, as Mr Carnegie planned they should. Some have made fortunes with it. Others have used it successfully in creating harmony in their homes. A clergyman used it so effectively that it brought him an income of upwards of $75,000 a year. Arthur Nash, a Cincinnati tailor, used his near-bankrupt business as a guinea pig on which to test the formula. The business came to life and made a fortune for its owners. It is still thriving, although Mr Nash has gone. The experiment was so unique that newspapers and magazines gave it more than a million dollars worth of laudatory publicity. The secret was passed on to Stuart Austin Weir of Dallas, Texas. He was ready for it, so ready that he gave up his profession and studied law. Did he succeed? That story is told too. While serving as an advertising manager of the De La Salle Extension University, when it was a little more than a name, I had the privilege of seeing 
J.G. Chapline, president of the university, used the formula so effectively that he made LaSalle one of the great extension schools of this country. The secret to which I refer has been mentioned no fewer than a hundred times throughout this book. It has not been directly named, for it seems to work more successfully when it is merely uncovered and left in sight where those who are ready and searching for it may pick it up. That is why Mr. Carnegie tossed it to me so quietly, without giving me its specific name. If you are ready to put it to use, you will recognise this secret at least once in every chapter. I wish I might feel privileged to tell you how you will know if you are ready, but that would be, that would, pardon me, that would deprive you of much of the benefit you will receive when you make the discovery on your own. If you have ever been discouraged, if you have had difficulty to surmount, which took the very soul out of you, if you have tried and failed, if you were ever handicapped by illness or physical affliction, the story of my son's discovery and use of the Carnegie formula may prove to be the oasis in the desert of lost hope for which you have been searching. This secret was extensively used by President Woodrow Wilson during World War I. It was passed on to every soldier who fought in the war, carefully wrapped in the training received before going to the front. President Wilson told me it was a strong factor in raising the funds needed for the war. A peculiar thing about this secret is that those who once acquire it and use it find themselves literally swept on to success. If you doubt this, study the names of those who have used it. Wherever they have been mentioned, check their records for yourself and be convinced. There is no such thing as something for nothing. The secret to which I refer cannot be had without a price, although the price is far less than its value. It cannot be had at any price by those who are not intentionally searching for it. It cannot be given away. It cannot be purchased for money, for the reason that it comes in two parts. One part is already in possession of those who are ready for it. The secret serves equally well all who are ready for it. Education has nothing to do with it. Long before I was born, the secret had found its way to the possession of Thomas A. Edison, and he used it so intelligently that he became the world's leading inventor, although he had but three months of schooling. The secret was passed on to Edward C. Barnes, a business associate of Mr. Edison. He used it so effectively that, although he was then making only $12,000 a year, he accumulated a great fortune and retired from active business while still a young man. You will find his story at the beginning of the first chapter. It should convince you that riches are not beyond your reach, that you can still be what you wish to be, that money, fame, recognition and happiness can be had by all who are ready and determined to have these blessings. How do I know these things? You should have the answer before you finish this book. You may find it in the very first chapter or on the last page. While I was performing the 20-year task of research, which I had undertaken at Mr. Carnegie's request, I analysed hundreds of well-known men, many of whom admitted that they had accumulated, accumulated their vast fortune through the aid of the Carnegie secret. Among these men were Henry Ford, Harris F. Williams, William Rigby Jr., Dr. Frank Gonzalez, John Wanamaker, Daniel Willard, James J. Hill, King Gillette, George S. Parker, Ralph A. Weeks, E. M. Statler, 
Judge Daniel T. Wright, Henry Doherty, Cyrus H. K. Curtis, John D. Rockefeller, George Eastman, Thomas A. Edison, Charles M. Schwab, Frank A. Vanderlip, Theodore Roosevelt, F. W. Woolworth, John W. Davis, Colonel Robert A. Dollar, Albert Hubbard, Wilbur Wright, Edward A. Feline, William Jennings, Edwin C. Barnes, Arthur Nash, Dr. David Starr Jordan, Clarence Darrow, Woodrow Wilson, J. Ogden Armour, William Howard Taft, Arthur Brisbane, Luther Burbank, Julius Rosenwald, Edward W. Bock, Stuart Austin Weir, Frank A. Munsey, Dr. Frank Crane, Albert H. Gary, George M. Alexander, Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, J. G. Chaplin, U.S. Senator Jennings Randolph, John H. Patterson. These names represent but a small fraction of the hundreds of well-known Americans whose achievements, financial and otherwise, prove that those who understand and apply the Carnegie secret reach high stations in life. I have never known anyone who was inspired to use the secret who did not achieve noteworthy success in his chosen calling. I have never known any person to distinguish himself or to accumulate riches of any consequence without possession of the secret. From these two facts, I draw the conclusion that the secret is more important as a part of the knowledge essential for self-determination than any which one receives through what is popularly known as an education. What is education anyway? This has been answered in full detail. Somewhere, as you read, the secret to which I refer will jump from the page and stand boldly before you, if you are ready for it. When it appears, you will recognize it. Whether you receive the sign in the first or the last chapter, stop for a moment when it presents itself and turn down a glass, for that occasion will mark the most important turning point of your life. Remember too, as you go through the book, that it deals with facts and not with fiction its purpose being to convey a great universal truth which all who are ready may learn what to do and how to do it. They will also receive the needed stimulus to make a start. As a final word of preparation, before you begin the first chapter, may I offer one brief suggestion which may provide a clue by which the Carnegie secret may be recognised? It is this. All achievement, all earned riches, have their beginning in an idea. If you are ready for the secret, you already possess one half of it. Therefore, you will readily recognize the other half the moment it reaches your mind. Napoleon Hill Chapter 1 Thoughts are things The man who thought his way into partnership with Thomas A. Edison Truly, thoughts are things and powerful things at that, when they are mixed with definitiveness of purpose, persistence and a burning desire for their trans translation into riches or other material objects. Some years ago, Edwin C. Barnes discovered how true it is that men really do think and grow rich. His discovery did not come about in one sitting. It came, little by little, 
beginning with a burning desire to become a business associate of the great Edison. One of the chief characteristics of Barnes' desire was that it was definite. He wanted to work with Edison, not for him. Observe carefully the description of how he went about translating his desire into reality, and you will have a better understanding of the principles which lead to riches. When his desire, or impulse of thought, first flashed into his mind, he was in no position to act upon it. Two difficulties stood in his way. He did not know Mr. Edison, and he did not have enough money to pay his railroad fare to Orange, New Jersey. These difficulties were sufficient to have discouraged the majority of men from making any attempt to carry out the desire, but this was no ordinary desire. The Inventor and the Tramp He presented himself at Mr. Edison's laboratory and announced that he was going to go into business with the inventor. In speaking of the first meeting between Barnes and Edison years later, Mr. Edison said, He stood there before me, looking like an ordinary tramp but there was something in the expression of his face which conveyed the impression that he was determined to get what he had come after. I had learned from years of experience that with men that when a man really desires a thing so deeply that he is willing to stake his entire future on a single turn of the wheel in order to get it, he is sure to win. I gave him the opportunity he asked for because I saw he had made up his mind to stand by until he succeeded. Subsequent events proved that no mistake was made. It could not have been the young man's appearance which got him his start in the Edison office, for that was definitely against him. It was what he thought that counted. Barnes did not get into his partnership with Edison in his first interview. He did get a chance to work in the Edison offices at a very nominal wage. Months went by. Apparently nothing happened to bring nearer the coveted goal which Barnes had set upon in his mind as his definite major purpose. But something important was happening in Barnes' mind. He was constantly intensifying his desire to become the business associate of Edison. Psychologists have correctly said that when one is truly ready for a thing, it puts in its appearance. Barnes was ready for a business association with Edison. Moreover, he was determined to remain ready until he got that which he was seeking. He did not say to himself, oh well, what's the use? I guess I'll change my mind and try for a salesman's job. But he did say, I came here to go into business with Edison and I'll accomplish this end if it takes the remainder of my life. He means it. What a different story men would have to tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. Maybe young Barnes did not know it at the time, but his bulldog determination, his persistence in standing back of a single desire, was destined to mow down all opposition and bring him the opportunity he was seeking. Sly Disguises of Opportunity when the opportunity came, it appeared in a different form and from a different direction than Barnes had expected. That is one of the tricks of opportunity. It has a sly habit of slipping in by the back door, and often it comes disguised in the form of misfortune or temporary defeat. Perhaps this is why so many fail to recognize opportunity. 
Mr. Edison had just perfected a new office device known at the time as the Edison Dictating Machine. His salesmen were not enthusiastic over the machine. They did not believe it could be sold without great effort. Barnes saw his opportunity. It had crawled in quietly, hidden in a queer-looking machine which interested no one but Barnes and the inventor. Barnes knew he could sell the Edison dictating machine. He suggested this to Edison and promptly got his chance. He did sell the machine. In fact, he sold it so successfully that Edison gave him a contract to distribute and market it all over the nation. Out of that business association, Barnes made himself rich in money, but he did something infinitely greater. He proved that one really may think and grow rich. How much actual cash that original desire of Barnes was worth to him, I have no way of knowing. Perhaps it brought him two or three million dollars, but the amount, whatever it is, becomes insignificant when it is compared with the greater asset he acquired in the form of definite knowledge that an intangible impulse of thought can be transmuted into material rewards by the appreciation of known principles. Sorry, by the application of known principles. Barnes literally thought himself into a relationship with the great Edison. He thought himself into a fortune. He had nothing to start with except the capacity to know what he wanted and the determination to stand by that desire until he realized it. Three feet from gold. One of the great, most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when one is overtaken by temporary defeat. Every person is guilty of making this mistake at one time or another. An uncle of R.U. Darby was caught by the gold fever in the gold rush days, and went west to dig and grow rich. He had never heard that more gold has been mined from the thoughts of men than has ever been taken from the earth. He staked a claim and went to work with pick and shovel. After weeks of labour, he was rewarded by the discovery of the shining ore. He needed machinery to bring the ore to the surface. Quietly, he kept covered up the mine, retraced his footsteps to his home in Williamsburg, Maryland, told his relatives and a few neighbours of the strike. They got together money for the needed machinery and had it shipped. The uncle and Darby went back to work the mine. The first car of ore was mined and shipped to a smelter. The returns proved that they had one of the richest mines in Colorado. A few more cars of that ore would clear the debts. Then would come the big killing in profits. Down went the drills. Up went the hopes of Darby and uncle. Then something happened. The vein of gold ore disappeared. They had come to the end of the rainbow and the pot of gold was no longer there. They drilled on, desperately trying to pick up the vein again, but to no avail. Finally, they decided to quit. They sold the machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. The junk man called in a mining engineer to look at the mine and do a little calculating. The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners were not familiar with fault lines. His calculations showed that the vein would be found just three feet from where the Darbys had stopped drilling. That is exactly where it was found. The junk man took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. I will never stop because men say no. Long afterwards, Mr. Darby recouped his loss many times over when he made the discovery that desire can be transmuted into gold. 
that the discovery came after he went into the business of selling life insurance. Remembering that he had lost a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold, Darby profited by the experience in his chosen work by the simple method of saying to himself, I stopped three feet from gold, but I never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. Darby became one of a small group of men who sell over a million dollars in life insurance annually. He owed his stickability to the lesson he learned from his quitability in the gold mining business. Before success in any man's life, he is sure to meet with much temporary defeat and perhaps some failure. When defeat overtakes a man, the easiest and most logical thing to do is to quit. That is exactly what the majority of men do. More than 500 of the most successful men this country has ever told the author their greatest success came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. Failure is a trickster with a keen sense of irony and cunning. It takes a great delight in tripping one when success is almost within reach. 50 Cent Lesson in Persistence Shortly after Mr. Darby received his degree from the University of Hard Knocks and had decided to profit by his experience in the gold mining business, he had the good fortune to be present on an occasion that proved to him that no does not necessarily mean no. One afternoon, he was helping his uncle grind wheat in an old-fashioned mill. The uncle operated a large farm in which a number of coloured sharecrop farmers lived. Quietly, the door was opened and a small coloured child, the daughter of a tenant, walked in and took her place near the door. The uncle looked up, saw the child and barked at her roughly. What do you want? Meekly, the child replied, My mammy, say send her 50 cents. I'll not do that, the uncle retorted. Now run on home. Yes, sir, the child replied, but she did not move. The uncle went ahead with his work, so busily engaged that he did not pay enough attention to the child to observe that she did not leave. When he looked up and saw her still standing there, he yielded at her, I told you to go home. Now go, or I'll take the switch to you. The little girl said, Yes, sir but she did not budge. The uncle dropped a sack of grain as he was about to pour into the mill hopper, picked up a barrel stave and started towards the child with an expression on his face that indicated trouble. Darby held his breath. He was certain as if he was about to witness an assault. He knew his uncle had a fierce temper. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was standing, she quickly stepped forward one step looked into his eyes and screamed at the top of her shrill voice, My mammy's got to have that 50 cents! The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, then slowly laid the barrel stave on the floor, put his hand in his pocket, took out half a dollar and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed towards the door, never taking her eyes off the man who she had just conquered. After she had gone, the uncle sat down on a box and looked out the window into a space for more than ten minutes. He was pondering in awe over the whipping he had just taken. Mr. Darby, too, was doing some thinking. That was the first time in all his experience that he had seen a coloured child deliberately master an adult white person. How did she do it? What happened to his uncle that caused him to lose his fierceness and become as docile as a lamb? 
What strange power did this child use that made her master of the situation? These and other similar questions flashed into Darby's mind, but he did not, he did not answer until years later when he told me the story. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to the author in the old mill on the very spot where the uncle took his whipping. The Strange Power of a Child As we stood there in that musty old mill, Mr. Darby repeated the story of the unusual conquest and finished by asking, What can you make of it? What strange power did that child use that so completely whipped my uncle? The answer to this question will be found in the principles described in this book. The answer is full and complete. It contains details and instructions sufficient to enable anyone to understand and apply the same force which the little child accidentally stumbled upon. Keep your mind alert and you will observe exactly what strange power came to the rescue of the child. You will catch a glimpse of this power in the next chapter. Somewhere in the book, you will find an idea that will quicken your receptive powers and place at your command, for your own benefit, the same irresistible power. The awareness of this power may come to you in the first chapter, or it may flash into your mind in some subsequent chapter. It may come in the form of a single idea, or it may come in the nature of a plan or a purpose. Again, it may cause you to go back into your past experiences of failure or defeat and bring to the surface some lessons by which you can regain all that you lost through defeat. After I had described to Mr. Darby the power unwittingly used by the little coloured child, he quickly retraced his 30 years of experience as a life insurance salesman and frankly acknowledged that his success in that field was due in no small degree to the lesson he had learnt from the child. Mr. Darby pointed out, every time a prospect tried to bow me out without buying, I saw that child standing there in the old mill, her big eyes glaring in defiance, and I said to myself, I've got to make this sale. The better portion of all sales I have made were made after people had said no. He recalled too his mistake at having stopped only three feet from gold, but, he said, that experience was a blessing in disguise. It taught me to keep on going on no matter how hard the going may be, a lesson I learned I needed to learn before I could succeed at anything. This story of Mr. Darby and his uncle, the child and the gold mine, doubtless will be read by hundreds of men who make their living by selling life insurance. And to all of these, the author wishes to offer the suggestion that Darby owes to these two experiences his ability to sell more than a million dollars of life insurance every year. Mr. Darby's experiences were commonplace and simple enough, yet they held the answer to his destiny in life. Therefore, they were as important to him as life itself. He profited by these two dramatic experiences because he analysed them and found the lesson they taught. But what of the man who has neither the time nor the inclination to study failure in search of knowledge that may lead to success? Where and how is he to learn the art of converting defeat into stepping stones to opportunity. In answer to these questions, this book was written. One sound idea is all you need.
The answer called for a description of 13 principles, but remember, as you read, the answer you may be seeking to the questions which have caused you to ponder over the strangeness of life may be found in your own mind through some idea, plan, or purpose which may spring into your mind as you read. One sound sound idea is that one needs to achieve success. The principles described in this book contain ways and means of creating useful ideas. Before we go into any further in our research to the description of these principles, we believe you are entitled to receive this important suggestion. When riches become when riches begin to come, they come so quickly in such great abundance that one wonders where they have been hiding during all these lean years. This is an astounding statement, and all the more so when we take into consideration the popular belief that riches come only to those who work hard and long. When you begin to think and grow rich, you will observe that riches begin with a state of mind, with definiteness of purpose, with little or no hard work. You and every other person ought to be interested in knowing how to acquire that state of mind which will attract riches. I spent 25 years in research because I too wanted to know how wealthy man became that way. Observe very closely. As soon as you master the principles of this philosophy and begin to follow the instructions for applying those principles, your financial status will begin to improve and everything you touch will begin to transmute itself into an asset for your benefit. Impossible? Not at all. One of the main weaknesses of mankind is the average man's familiarity with the word impossible. He knows all the rules which will not work. He knows all the things which cannot be done. This book was written for those who seek the rules which have made others successful and are willing to stake everything on those rules. Success comes to those who become success conscious. Failure comes to those who indifferently allow themselves to become failure conscious. The object of this book is to help all who seek it to learn the art of changing their minds from failure consciousness to success consciousness. Another weakness found in altogether too many people is the habit of measuring everything and everyone by their own impressions and beliefs. Some persons who read this will believe that they cannot think and grow rich because their thought habits have been steeped in poverty, want, misery, failure, and defeat. These unfortunate people remind me of a prominent Chinese who came to America to be educated in in American ways. He attended the University of Chicago. One day, President Harper met this young Oriental on campus, stopped to chat with him for a few minutes, and asked what had impressed him as being the most noticeable characteristic of the American people. Why, the student exclaimed, the queer slant of your eyes. Your eyes are off slant. What do we say about the Chinese? We refuse to believe that which we do not understand. We foolishly believe that our own limitations are the proper measure of limitations. Sure, the other fellow's eyes are off slant because they are not the same as our own. The impossible Ford V8 motor. When Henry Ford decided to produce his famous V8 motor, he chose to build an engine with the entire eight cylinders cast in one block and instructed his engineers to produce a design for the engine. 
The design was placed on paper, but the engineers agreed to a man that it was simply impossible to cast an eight-cylinder engine block in one piece. Ford said, produce it anyway. But they replied, it's impossible. Go ahead, Ford commanded, and stay in the job until you succeed, no matter how much time is required. The engineers went ahead. There was nothing else for them to do if they were to remain on the Ford staff. Six months went by, nothing happened. Another six months passed and still nothing happened. The engineers tried every conceivable plan to carry out the order, but the thing seemed out of the question. Impossible. At the end of the year, Ford checked with his engineers and again they informed him that they had found no way to carry out his orders. Go right ahead, said Ford. I want it and I'll have it. They went ahead and then, as if by a stroke of magic, the secret was discovered. The Ford determination had won once more. This story may not be described with minute accuracy, but the sum and substance of it is correct. Deduce from it, you who wish to think and grow rich, the secret of the Ford millions, if you can. You'll not have to look very far. Henry Ford was a success because he understood and applied the principles of success. One of these is desire, knowing what one wants. Remember this Ford story as you read and pick out the lines in which the secret of his stupendous achievements have been described. If you can do this, if you can lay your finger on the particular group of principles which made Henry Ford rich, you can equal his achievements in almost any calling for which you are suited. Why you are the master of your fate. When Henley wrote the prophetic lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, he should have informed us that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our souls, because we have the power to control our thoughts. He should have told us that our brains become magnetized with the dominating thoughts which we hold in our minds and by means which with which no man is familiar. These magnets attract to us the forces, the people, the circumstances of life which harmonize with the nature of our dominating thoughts. He should have told us that before we can accumulate riches in great abundance, we must magnetize our minds with intense desire for riches, that we must become money conscious until the desire for money drives us to create definite plans for acquiring it. But. Being a poet and not a philosopher, Henley contented himself by stating a great truth in poetic form. Leave those who followed him to interpret the philosophical meaning of his lines. Little by little, the truth has unfolded itself, until it now appears certain that the principles described in his book hold the secret mastery over our economic fate. Principles that can change your destiny. We are now ready to examine the first of these principles. Maintain a spirit of open-mindedness and remember as you read, they are the invention of no one man. The, principle have, has, the principles have worked for many men. You can put them to work for your own enduring benefit. You will find it easy, not hard to do. Some years ago, I delivered the commencement address at Salem College, Salem, West Virginia. I emphasized the principle described in the next chapter with so much intensity that one of the members of the graduating class 
definitely appropriate and made it part of his own philosophy. The young man became a congressman and an important factor in Frank- Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration. He wrote me a letter in which he so clearly stated his opinion of the principle outlined in the next chapter that I have chosen to publish this letter as an introduction to that chapter. It gives you an idea of the rewards to come. Dear, my dear Napoleon, my service as a member of Congress have given me an insight into the problems of men and women. I'm writing to offer a suggestion which may become helpful to thousands of worthy people. In 1922, you delivered the commencement address at Salem College when I was a member of the graduating class. In that address, you planted in my mind an idea which has been responsible for the opportunity I now have to serve the people of my state and will be responsible in a very large measure for what success I may have in the future. I recall, as though it were yesterday, the marvellous description you gave of the method by which Henry Ford with but little schooling, without a dollar, with no influential friends, rose to great heights. I made up my mind then, even before you had finished your speech, that I would make a place for myself, no matter how many difficulties I had to surmount. Thousands of young people will finish their schooling this year and within the next few years. Every one of them will be seeking just such a message of practical encouragement as the one I received from you. They will want to know where to turn, what to do to get started in life. You can tell them because you have helped to solve the problem of so many, many people. There are thousands of people in America today who would like to know how they can convert ideas into money. People who must start at scratch without finances and recoup their losses. If anyone can help them, you can. If you publish the book, I would like to own the first copy that comes from the press, personally autographed by you. With best wishes, believe me, cordially yours, Jennings Randolph. 35 years after I made that speech, it was my pleasure to return to Salem College in 1957 and deliver their baccalaureate sermon. At that time, I received an honorary Doctor of Literature degree from Salem College. Since that time in 1922, I have watched Jennings Randolph rise to become one of the nation's leading airline executives, a great inspirational speaker, a United States Senator from West Virginia.